This week's episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Pal Mal Cigarettes. Pal Mal, they'll bring out the cracker bastard in you. And they're mild. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's Timothy Hutton week. I mean, Stephen King week. <laughs> it's all about characters created by Stephen King that are writers and their personal problems drive them insane. Hooray! Yes. <laughs> Very Thinly nearly, veiled references to his own life. Very nearly a double feature, but no. right, very nearly. <laughs> this week it is 1993's The Dark Half and 2004's Secret Window. But before we get into the movies, Kelsey slash cards. Young Michael Myers killed his sister Judith on Halloween night. In what year? Oh, God. Okay, so... He was... <laughs> fuck. Okay, so... Does it say the title of the movie there? No. Damn, because if ever they say the title of the movie, then they also put the year the movie came out. Mm-hmm. Just close to when the movie was set. I think it came out in 78? Does that sound about right? I'm not gonna tell you. That's not the answer to the question. But it'll help you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say 1970. Incorrect. Yeah. 1963. How long was he in? I thought he was like 11 and then he was in for like eight no, years. No, he was a little, little kid. He was like five. Okay. Was he? Because he was like in his early 20s when he escaped, right? I think he was like 21. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so unclear on that. Did it come out in 78? I need to know. <laughs> I need to know if I'm right. Hold on. <laughs> Halloween, 1978. I was right. You should have asked me when Halloween came out. So 15 years. Yeah, Jesus. Okay, Kelsey. Yes. In The Terminator, 1984. Okay. Which I think does qualify as a horror movie. I disagree, but okay. I think we're rewriting history based on the sequels. I wouldn't call Aliens a horror movie. I would call Alien a horror movie. I'd say the same thing for Terminator. The first Terminator, yeah, it's sci-fi, but it's sci-fi horror. She's being pursued by a relentless killer. Oh, uh, what does that sound like? <laughs> anyway, in the Terminator, 1984, what type of animal does the human resistance use to detect Terminators? Dogs. Fine. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel bad now? Nope. <laughs> God. All right. First up is 1993's The Dark Half, written and directed by George A. Romero and based on the novel by Stephen King, starring Timothy Hutton, Amy Madigan, and Michael Rooker. He's Mary Poppins, y'all. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! Kelsey, what is The Dark Half about? A writer gets famous through a pseudonym. Unfortunately, that pseudonym comes back to haunt him. 
All right. Very good. Very nice. Kelsey, should people watch this movie? No. <laughs> it's long. It's it's too long. It's too long, and it's kind of boring. It's just over two hours, and it really doesn't need to be. Not at all. Not I, at all. I think it's a very interesting premise. Very interesting premise. I think it's a weak premise, is what I think. I oh, I think they just didn't do enough with it. I think the payoff is weak. Yeah. Which is, that's kind of Stephen King's downfall in a lot of cases, is he just doesn't know how to pay off his stories, mm-hmm. and he just comes up with premises, and then he writes 800 pages about it, <laughs> and then by the time you get to the end, it's like, oh, and it's magic. <laughs> okay, for my 307th book, uh, this couple is attacked by a... a a lamp monster! Ooh, ooh, You're not even trying anymore, are you? When can I have it? You don't really need to see this movie. It's no. kind of unnecessary. Nobody gives a revelatory performance. No. Nothing really interesting is seen except maybe at the end. No. <laughs> maybe you'll, you have an idea of how Kelsey feels about this movie. <laughs> It's not like it's terrible. It's not, It is, but it's totally unnecessary. It is. Yeah. All right, well, you can decide for yourself if you want to watch it, and when we get back, we will talk about 1993's The Dark Half. Sad Beaumont has a secret. I wrote those words, and I have no recollection of doing it. But sometimes, secrets take on a life of their own. It's like watching jackals turn into hide. Take over your life, can't you see that? Based upon a book by Stephen King comes George A. Romero's masterful vision of a nightmare come true. Are you ready? Just waiting on you. The Dark Half opens at theaters everywhere April 23rd. All right, Kelsey, you want to walk us through the plot of The Dark Half? What happens? We start in 1968. We see a boy who is a farmer's son who loves to write. He goes to Castle Rock High School. <laughs> but he keeps getting these this horrible pain in his head. And at first they think it's his eyes. But then it's so bad they take him to the hospital. And they discover that he has a quote-unquote tumor in his brain. Right. So they go to cut it out and... It actually ends up being like a twin that he absorbed in the womb. Well, I think you're burying the lead here. They open up his skull to reveal his brain, and then an eye in his brain opens up. Yes. Hillary, remember where you are. Please. And there's teeth, and there's a tooth that has a fucking, like, cavity in it, which yeah, makes no uh-huh. sense. Ah. <laughs> yeah, and they take all this out. Yes, uh, they they remove it all. Normally what happens is they, they, they talk about how uh, more often than you would think a child actually starts out as twins, but one isn't, isn't viable or the other absorbs it before it be- can become viable. And that, that's it. It's just born as one baby and nothing happens. But occasionally some remnants are can be found. They don't know how, but in this case, those cells reactivated after he was born and started growing body parts. Good thing they dealt with that because otherwise he'd have a person growing out of his head. Yes. 
Then what? And it should be said that every time he gets pain and when they take the stuff out, what do we see? A bunch of birds. A big flock of birds. It feels very much like Hitchcock's The Birds. Oh, very much, yeah. In fact, I thought for a while they were using the same sounds, but it's not quite as screeching as it is in The Birds. Cut to 23 years later, he is married and has... A pseudonym? Twins! Oh, twins, yeah, uh uh-huh. He has twins. Right, yeah. He's married to the chick from, uh, Build It and He Will Come. Amy Madigan. Yeah, that one. (laughs) And he is a college professor who teaches creative writing, and none of the stuff that he writes under his own name seems to be doing very well. But the stuff that he writes under the pseudonym, what is it? Uh, George Stark. George Stark. And George Stark writes, like, kind of smut. Yes. Um, but it's, it's... Murder and rape and sex and gritty, grimy stuff. Yes. And it is popular smut. Yes. It does very well. And he gets to separate his, his celebrity from his personal life because he uses this pseudonym. Yes. And after one of his classes where he's teaching about what else but duality. Yeah. This dude comes up and he's like, hey, will you sign this book for me? And he's like, I didn't write that. And he's like, I thought it was you. And he goes, look at the name. It says George Stark. Look at the picture on the back. That's not me. And he goes, I know it's you. Somebody from your publishing office told me, and I am now going to blackmail you. Yeah. So Beaumont is just like, yeah, fuck it. Um, I'm just going to kill off George Stark and let the public know that it is, in fact, me. Yeah. It's fuck being blackmailed. Yeah. And he, he, he talks it over with his publishers, who are two, they're a divorced couple, but they still run the business together, and they seem to get along very well in that regard. Uh, they're kind of funny and cute. I like these characters quite a bit. And they're like, hey, you know what? Go for it. We're all for it. We'll support you in whatever you decide to do. We'll make a whole deal out of it. We'll have somebody from People Magazine interview you. We'll have a photographer out. And it's the photographer's great idea to have a photo shoot of him and his wife uh, burying George Stark. And the tombstone reads, George Stark, 1985 to 1991, not a very nice guy. But before that happens, he has a conversation with his wife. And she's actually all for it, because she doesn't like him when he's writing as George Stark. Yeah. He stays in his room all the time. He drinks too much. He says mean things. This, of course, brings up, he's like, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, you are when you're George Stark. You really don't realize what you like when you write those books, do you? It's like watching Jekyll turn into Hyde. And as we all know, Stephen had his own bout with alcoholism, and that's what this is about. Yes, this is the last novel he wrote as an alcoholic. Well, he's always an alcoholic. His last novel he wrote before becoming sober. And this is a reflection of that. The the two different types of people he was when he was drinking and when he was sober. And Stephen King also wrote under a pseudonym of Richard Bachman, Interestingly, <laughs> certain stories were written under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. The more popular ones are The Running Man and Thinner. These are written under the name Richard Bachman. And he wanted to try out 
okay, is it just his name or is it actually his stories? And so he wrote some stories and released them under the pseudonym Richard Bachman, and they didn't do so hot. And then after it was revealed in 87, I think, or somewhere around there, that he was Richard Bachman, the sales skyrocketed. So it kind of was contrary to what he was hoping would happen. Well, any new writer is going to start out slow. So I think his whole thing was a little bit Well, he wrote seven books. He wrote Rage, The Long Walk, Road Work, The Running Man, Thinner, The Regulators, and Blaze. Although The Regulators was 1996 and Blaze was 2007. But from 77 to 84, he wrote five books and they all kind of did nothing. And I understand name recognition helps, but that doesn't disprove the point which is, do I sell so much because my stories are good? Or do I sell so much because it's my name? And the answer was, regardless of how good his stories are, he sells so much because of his name. Now, his name got popular because he wrote good stories, but that's why it sells so much is because of his name. So I think that's kind of an interesting little backfire. His little plan backfired on him. <laughs> So when he's getting in, when he's getting interviewed, he's asked, you know, where did George Stark come from? And he says, one day I was just in here, and he woke up and started to talk. And the interviewer's like, you realize that's like classic symptoms of schizophrenia, yeah. right? <laughs> and he's like, you know what? George wouldn't like any of this. In fact, I think he'd want to have your balls for breakfast. Uh-huh. In fact, I think it's safe to say that George would want to have your balls for breakfast. Which I think that the interviewer is just like, okay. <laughs> Those weirdo artsy types. Yes. And they make a fake grave, as Chris said, and the photographer's like, ain't it a hoot? What is the word he keeps saying over and over again? I meant to write it down and I didn't. All this folder all we put ourselves through. I don't know. I'm going to look it up and then I will shout it when I find it. So the photographer, after they're all done, he is driving home, I guess. And there's this, I think there's a guy like, um, oh, he's he's hitchhiking. He's like, one in the damn a.m.? He pulls over to help the guy out. And the guy kind of seems to have disappeared, but all of a sudden he reappears to kill the photographer. What the hell? American way of death, Homer. Without any folderol. Who apparently had a fake leg that yeah, was used to beat him to death. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and this is when we meet Pangborn. Pangborn, who is uh, Michael Rooker. Yes, uh, and he is also a character in Castle Rock. He is the one that is uh, shacking up with Sissy Spacek's character. Yes, and he is also in Needful Things. Yes, which we have not seen and I have not read either. No. And this kind of does a really good job of showing us why the character of Pangborn, (laughs) by the time the show Castle Rock happens, would be like, I totally believe you, dude. You tell me that's the devil? All right, I believe it. Right, yeah. After the shit I've seen. He's seen some shit. (laughs) But he he shows up because he's told by the person who runs the grave, uh, the the cemetery. He thinks somebody was buried alive or something. And Pangborn's like, no, like somebody dug a hole, was just vandalizing it. 
And the guy's like, but look, you can see handprints. It shows that the person pushed themselves out. And Pangborn's like, yeah, he dug himself in. And then he got and out. And he had to climb out, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so it's clear from the get-go that Pangborn is not going to buy your bullshit. Yeah. Until he's proven otherwise. Then he's called to see the writer who's been killed as well. And he's really upset by it. He's just like, who would do this to an old man? You know, I hope I get a chance to ask him why he did it. So they're all on this hunt for, I guess, the car. I think the guy stole the car. And it shows up in some other state, and the cop finds it, and he's just like, all the way from Maine? Ask Mama if she believes this. Ask Mama if she believes this. <laughs> and there is Stephen's writing. He keeps saying that over Sounding over terrible yep, in movie uh-huh. form. Tries to have a, like, create a saying out of nothing, and have characters use it all the time when that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Ask Mama if she believes this. And they find fingerprints in the blood did that remind you of anything yeah it reminded me of the the agatha christie story we watched on amazon prime uh innocence by catastrophe what's the name of that movie (laughs) ordeal by innocence yes an agatha christie adaptation that we just watched same thing we found your fingerprints in the blood therefore it's absolutely you yeah then we see kind of a weird dream of the writers what's his name what's the character's name thad thad our main character thad has a dream where he hears the voice of stark and he's like you know you always were the clumsy one and elvis is playing i didn't mention this earlier when we first see the kid having pain back in the 60s he's listening to are you lonesome tonight by elvis uh-huh so that's kind of like the showing of this is where he comes in falderall hey didn't it kind of falderall that's what the photographer says all the time falderall what does that mean uh it's like uh bullshit like nonsense. Like balderdash? Yes. Pish posh? Falderall. Noun. Trivial or nonsensical fuss. A showy but useless item. A little falderall for old George there. <laughs> and like he sees this weird like person. I don't know if it's supposed to be his wife. I think it's supposed to be his wife. And like the face like <sighs> yeah, uh-huh. breaks apart. I thought that that was actually kind of cool. It was his wife. It was like this porcelain head on top of a body and it's got like blood on it or whatever and then it just bursts it explodes and it bursts open and there's a skull underneath and i thought that that was actually kind of a neat effect obviously it's not supposed to be realistic or anything like that but i was not expecting there to be also a skull under that it's pretty interesting (laughs) so then pangborn is uh go so basically thad tells pangborn I think I know who it is. I think it's this guy who wanted to blackmail me. Yeah. So Pangborn's like, all right, I'll go and check into it. So he goes, and oh my God, the landlady of this place, it's just, it's got King written all over it. She's so, she's fat. She's, uh, she's gross. um, Greedy. And all she cares about is money. And it's just, like, I love Steven's writing when I read it. I don't like it when it's put into film, because it looks ridiculous. Right. Well, you better not have skipped out and not given me my... You're two weeks behind on rent. Fawson? 
You owe me two weeks' rent. If these guys are here to take you away, I want it now. Yeah. So, so she walks in, and one of the cops, like, throws up, and uh, Pangborn, like, looks shocked, and she just looks annoyed, like, God damn it, now I'm not gonna get paid. From the silhouette, it looks like this, and we identified it as this, and then later on, Pangborn reveals this to be the case, but he cut out the dude's tongue, and then cut off his genitals and shoved them in his mouth. Which made me think of, uh, Baby, I Got Your Money by Old Dirty Bastard. Yeah, he's got his dick in his mouth. You say he had his dick in his mouth. Baby Puffy taught me that back in the house. Give him the money. Wow, what a pull. That's what it made me think of immediately. What a pull. <laughs> I, I literally wrote down in my notes, it looks like his dick is coming out of his mouth. Yeah. You say he had his dick in his mouth. And it's not long after this that we find out who is doing the killing. We see the killer head on. And it's the killer is played by Timothy Hutton is George Stark. And he is trying his best to look badass. And Jesus, is it cheesy? It was hard for me to even tell it was him, though. But it's just it's really bad. It is. It's really, really bad. But I think you you skipped. We meet Timothy Hutton's like best friend at the college. Yes, another I love teacher. That lady. She is awesome. She's so funny. And I love how absolutely bought into it she is. Like from the word go, she's like, oh, this is happening. Dad, <laughs> I'm delighted to see that they haven't incarcerated you. Sounds like the police have been in touch. They wanted me to confirm that you were a man of good character. I lied and told them that you were. And what is happening is that George Stark has manifested into reality and is not an alternate personality. He doesn't have uh, MPD or or, um, DID or any of that. It's literally another being that is the exact same person, but a separate body and separate personality and everything, and he slicks his hair back, and he and he talks with an accent, and uh, he's tough, and he don't take no shit. Like it's real. It's exactly how Thad wrote him. It's extremely smug on Stephen's part. Yeah. At one point, Thad goes and asks the doctor about his tumor for some reason. I don't remember why. It's probably just in my notes, and I haven't gotten there yet. And the doctor's like, "They didn't tell you." And he's like, no. And he he explains, you know, you had a twin in your head. And he goes, I'm guessing they didn't tell you about the birds either. And he's like, the birds? Yeah. He's like, yeah, it's like you thought of them. And then there they were. Uh Uh-huh. It's saying that whatever Stephen comes up with, it becomes real. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Totally. Okay. All right, Stephen. Good for you. And this lady is like right there. She is, yes, this is what's happening, and here's how you deal with it. And I'm looking it up, and I'm finding these birds, and I'm doing all your research for it, and I'm hiding you from the cops who are now after you, and because people keep dying. Both of his editors die Mm -hmm. uh, separately. Who else died? Uh, The writer of the People Magazine article, he dies. Uh, Just So people keep dying until eventually George contacts Thad and says, you know, hey, you know what I want, blah, 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 blah. And they catch that on recording. And Pangborn's like, well, we got to find out to see if that was a, a pre-recorded. And you were just talking to a recording. And he's like, you still don't believe me? And it's like, 
Yes. Nah, dog. <laughs> Pangborn does not believe in ghosts. He does not believe in people coming to life. He's like, this is nonsense, but he's not totally convinced that it actually is Thad either. That's hard for him to believe, yes. And it's funny, because at one point, Thad says, this is the craziest thing I ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> and Pangborn says, I wish I could say the same thing, Thad. Because he, he's like, looking at him like, you've been telling me that you've created another human yes, being. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jesus, after all this, I'm still a suspect. Look. They know they can't hang last night's work on you. You were here. But they think maybe you're working with an accomplice. Oh, now that is the craziest fucking thing I ever heard. I wish I could say the same thing, Thad. Yeah. So, ultimately, let's just skip ahead. Ultimately, George shows up and he doesn't want to die anymore. He wants to write again and that will give him his power back. So he thinks because he's falling apart. He is basically decaying, and he's trying to keep together. And in his mind, if if he comes back to life, you know, if Thad, does, like, unkills him and he writes again, then he'll get his power back. Thad may lose his, but, you know, that's just the cost. And he ends up holding Thad's wife and kids hostage. And so Thad shows up, and they get into a fight, and there's a razor involved, and... The razor falls down. To, it's a straight razor. It falls to the ground. And there's a baby sitting there, and it's really close to the baby. And he's, like, looking at them fighting. Ah, ah. And then the razor falls, and he just looks at the razor. And then looks right back up at them fighting. It's just the most adorable little thing <laughs> that just an actual baby did. He doesn't move a fucking inch. <laughs> he's totally not frightened or anything. George pulls a gun. And Thad, instead of, like, karate chopping it out of his hand, reaches instead for a typewriter and hits his hand with the typewriter. And it's like, you could have done that with, like, your actual hand. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't need to grab the typewriter, but it's symbolic. It is. Especially since George writes with a pencil and not a typewriter. He refuses to write with a typewriter. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, ultimately... They get the house gets swarmed by these birds. These birds that show up. That takes souls from the land of the living to the land of the dead, which is what his colleague finds out and tells him about. And they start like really, really swarming the outside of the house, and they start pecking at the walls and everything until they finally break into the attic where they are, and they swarm around George, and they just like peck him to death. They don't carry his soul away. They literally peck every last part of him apart and then fly off into the night. And Pangborn shows up during this process and sees it. Sees it happen. He's like, (laughs) holy fucking shit. And that death is really gruesome. That's one of the cool things I thought this movie had going for it. It's like super gruesome. And then the movie ends. Well, the birds go off into this like... Oh, there's there like a portal or whatever. Yeah. It reminded me of Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> Looked a lot like that. Yeah. And then it's done. And then it's over. And that's just the end of the movie. There's no resolution. Like, and hey. This is when we play What Now? Yeah. What? That's exactly what I was going to say. What now, Pangborn? Are you, is it that small enough a town where you could just look the other way when seven people or so are murdered? Like, what are you going to do now? <laughs> The only evidence you have is that it was Thad. Mm-hmm. What do you do? And it's not all in your jurisdiction. Some of it's in New York. 
So how are you going to stop this from coming back on Thad? No clue. He's going to prison. (laughs) I don't think he does. Well, of course he doesn't. But in reality, that's what would happen. (laughs) So lightning round? Lightning round. So the story, the first story that we see the kid writing is called Here There Be Tigers, which is the first story that Stephen King ever wrote. Yeah. It is in his Skeleton Crew book, which is a collection of short stories. So this is supposedly, supposedly, one of the most faithful adaptations of a Stephen King novel. And people say that's because George Romero and Stephen King were friends. They actually made Creepshow together. Um, And they are considered to be two masters of the horror genre, regardless of the medium. And so, of course, I guess they were fast friends. And so George Romero was committed to making a faithful adaptation of his friend's story. I think you could have strayed in a few ways, George. (laughs) There are some good lines. Uh, the, the friend, the lady who Falderall. works... Falderall. <laughs> the lady who works at the college says, thank you for bringing adventures. Yeah. It's really cute. At one point, Thad is talking to his wife, and he's like, you know, he's all the stuff I wish I was, talking about George Stark. He does all the things I wish I could. And she goes, yes, but he's a bastard. And, yeah, it reminded me of Fight Club. Uh And it's like, he's all these things I want to be. Yeah, that doesn't make him a good person. Right. You don't, obviously, you don't want to be a good person. You don't want to be that person. You think you do, but you don't. You need to find a happy medium. Yeah, right. And she even, the wife even says, you can't still admire him after all that he's done. Yeah. And I think Thad just kind of gives a look and then they cut to the next scene. Yeah, he, he envies his like boldness, I guess, his ability to say and do whatever he wants. But unfortunately, the things he says and does are are murderous. Like I, I talked about this in our seven Zodiac episode. Fight Club is too often misinterpreted <laughs> as being like the masculine ideal, and it's absolutely not. It's it's a it's a movie about toxic masculinity everything that tyler durden stands for in that movie is exactly the same shit that he rails against just packaged differently Mm -hmm. tyler durden is the villain of the story you should not emulate tyler durden but without him the main character never would have Become whole i guess i i guess you could say maybe the same thing about thad it's facing your demons. Yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's realizing that there are certain things that, like, you do need in your life. Yeah, you can't, you also, I, I think, tying it back to Stephen King and how this is basically an analogy of him uh, drinking, he, he was that. He is that. You can't just compartmentalize and put away. You have to acknowledge that that is you. It is a part of you. And now what are you going to do about it? You know, you can't just say it's a different person. It's like, no, that was me. I did that. And now that needs to serve as motivation to be a better person. Mm-hmm. Not just that's a different person, a different time. Because then, you know, you shove away all the lessons that you could learn from it. And I don't think Stephen King wanted to do that. 
that's why he wrote about this story. Yeah. There's also a movie tie-in adventure game <laughs> called The Dark Half. Uh, it's really, really bad. If you want to, like, look it up, do not play it. There is a channel on YouTube called Pushing Up Roses. She does a pretty good review of it and exactly what's wrong with it. It's it's pretty bad. <laughs> so I would recommend you go watch her video. Uh, it, it's a pretty good summary of, of exactly what's wrong with that game. It serves as another cash-in game made to promote the film and in no way can stand on its own as a decent graphic adventure. Which is unfortunate because it's an adventure game and we really like adventure games. Kelsey's we like, we want to play it. I want to play it. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Two last lines that I really like from the f- lady friend. Yeah. Do hope it's not you, Thaddeus. Yeah. <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> and lastly, she's talking about, I don't know, something about God. And she's just like, the Almighty seems to be on sabbatical. So <laughs> you're on your own. She's adorable. <laughs> yes, I love her. I love her a lot. And I'm so glad she didn't die. Yes. It's almost like George didn't know about her. Almost. Yeah. Uh-huh. I thought you knew about this shit. I don't know about any of it. Nobody does. Except the Almighty. And he seems to be on sabbatical. I talk here. I, I don't remember the scene very well, but they do print matching. And I wrote, why are they making it so obvious? I'd like a little mystery. It's almost like they didn't want it to be a mystery at all. It's more, how is Thad going to deal with this? I don't know. There was a part of the movie where I was wondering if it was just going to end up being him. Yeah, but, like, I mean... I didn't know that he actually created another person. Sure, that's fair. But, I mean, there's no mystery about, oh, is it the guy who was going to reveal? No, no mystery about that. Is it one of his students? Is it, like, they didn't set up any alternative for who it could be. It's him. That's who it is. And that I felt like it suffered because of that, which is a, a little bit of a bummer. That said, what do you think its Rotten Tomato score is? 40? 57. Okay. Still rotten, but pretty close to fresh. The Dark Half is a highly serious psychological study that can be faulted for being more curious than actually scary. Oh, absolutely. It's not scary at all. Not at all. Not in the least bit. (laughs) And it really had an opportunity to be. I mean, part of which is because, like, you didn't see any of the murders except for one. You saw him murder his publisher. Yes. Like, but you didn't see him murder the photographer. You didn't see him murder the the People Magazine guy. You didn't see him murder the guy at the the shop or whatever it was where the truck was found. Um, You didn't see him. Like, it's, it's, you don't see any of this. You just see the aftermath. And it's like, how am I supposed to be scared? There's no hunting. There's no, it's just that one scene with the publisher where he, he's in the hallway. Somebody comes out and says, what's going on here? And he says, like, murder, do you want some? Or something like that. What's going on? Murder. Do you want some? Yeah. If, what would you give it? Probably like a 50. It wasn't awful. No. It's not like a bad movie. It's just boring and long. And no, you you're right. I think 50 is probably a good... I mean, you just don't really care. Yeah. Metacritic gave it a 53. So we're around there. Yeah, 50 seems appropriate. It's just like you watch it and it's almost a nothing movie. Exactly. 
Like I'm not. I can't sit here and rip on it because it's not awful. Yeah. Like. It's not bad enough to be entertaining because of it, and it's not good enough to be just straight entertaining. It's it, it's at that valley. It's at the bottom it's of just that a valley. Movie. Yeah. Uh huh. It's, it's just, just a movie. movie. Which is kind of a bummer, Stephen. <laughs> All right, that was 1993's The Dark Half. Before we move on to our next movie, Kelsey, Slash Cards. I've got a real easy one for you. You got a banger? Name one horror movie starring Kurt Russell. The Thing. Oh. Look at the chops on you. (laughs) Kelsey. Yes. This one's pretty easy, too. Okay. Who directed Tenebrae? Isn't it Tenebrae? No. Are you sure? Uh, there's an actual word, Tenebrae, and according to Merriam-Webster's, it's Tenebrae. Dario Argento, That's you correct. Dick. <laughs> what does that mean? A church service observed during the final part of Holy Week commemorating the sufferings and death of Christ. Oh. Okay. Tenebrae, or E... All right, moving on to 2004's Secret Window. Written and directed by David Kep, based on the novel by Stephen King, starring Johnny Depp, Maria Bello, John Turturro, and, of course, our good friend, Timothy Hutton. Yeah. Kelsey, what is the premise of Secret Window? A writer. <laughs> yep. In the midst of a divorce. Yep. Is is Acosta the right one? He's visited by. Visited by a man who claims that he stole his story uh, and starts to threaten his neighbors, his loved ones, his life. Yep. Should people watch the movie before we talk about it? No. <laughs> I said last time I felt like this movie got kind of a bad rap. It's a little bit underrated, I felt, and that it should, um, it's not great, but I don't think it deserved the hate that it got. Um, I, after watching it again, I still feel that way. It is still not great. I, I think it, you shouldn't hate it and you shouldn't dislike it, but it's still not that great. Just listen to us talk about it. You don't need to watch it for yourself, I don't think. Nope. No. So just stick around while we listen to the trailer, and when we come back, we'll talk about 2004's Secret Window. Mort Rainey writes stories that scare you to death. But now... Hello? One story... What's wrong? ...is coming back to haunt him. I don't believe I know you. That doesn't matter. I know you. From the writer of Panic Room... Johnny Depp. Leave me alone! Secret Window. Rated PG-13. In theaters March 12th. Kelsey. Yeah. What happens in Secret Window? We open up on Johnny Depp, who plays the character of Mort Rainey. He is in a car telling himself to leave and not go back, but he does. He goes and steals a key and then drives to the room. Because he couldn't just walk there. Yeah. And he busts in, and there is his wife. Maria Bello. Maria Maria Bello? Yeah. 
Maria Bello. Problem with Maria Bello's name. <laughs> Maria Bello is awesome. She's in a history of violence. No, her character's name. Amy. Amy, who is having an affair with Timothy Hutton. Timothy T. Hutts. Mm-hmm. Ted. And then we cut to six months later, and they show us like a world within the mirror, and then they go through the mirror. It's very much showing you duality. It's very much showing you two sides to every human being. Right. And we get a lot um, that is just shown to us, which I always appreciate. Um, We can see that the chair is falling apart. His bathrobe is falling apart. His hair is a mess. It's all letting us know that his life has fallen apart. And he gets a knock on the door. He opens it up to... John Turturro, playing John Shooter. Yes. And he is wearing a stupid hat (laughs) that makes him John Shooter. And he says, you stole my story. You stole my story. Those are the first words uttered after the opening credits. They do not waste any time getting into the core premise. No. And, you know, Johnny Depp basically, like, brushes him off, fuck you, whatever. And John Shooter is like, no, like, I'm not leaving. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have this out. You stole my story. And Johnny Depp's like, you know, why don't you call my publisher? This is bullshit. And he's like, no, this is strictly between you and me. No outsiders. Uh Uh-huh. Which, if you know where the story is going, that has a double meaning. Yeah. We see his dog, Chico, who has a blind eye. Did you notice that? He has cataracts. Oh, cataracts. Yes. We see Johnny Depp kind of stumbling around his house. It's very much like, what is his name from Fear and Loathing? Uh, Raul Duke? That's not true. That's the name of the of the persona he has in that movie. Oh. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. It's also the walk he does a lot for Jack Sparrow. The kind of... I don't know how to describe it. How would yeah. you describe it? Shuffling around, sure. kind of moving in a circle. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes back to his computer where we've already seen that he's been writing about the situation between him is now almost ex-wife. They still haven't finalized their divorce. And he completely deletes the whole paragraph and he says, no bad writing. Um, and the manuscript that John Shooter gave him, he, you know, throws away. We meet his maid. Mrs. Garvey. Yes, Mrs. Garvey, who takes care of him even though it annoys him. And she kind of nags like a wife would, but he also kind of likes her. And she loves him, too, you yes. know? Yes. And then she puts she put the manuscript out because she thought it was his, and she thought he was just throwing it away. And using a pen name. She says, John Shooter, that's not me. And she's like, well, I don't know, maybe it was one of those pen names or whatever. And she literally asks him why you'd want to hide behind a made-up name. <laughs> it's not me. Oh, I thought it was one of those, um, whatchamacallum, pseudonyms or, or nims. No, no, I never used one. I've never used one. Well, I can't imagine why you would. I mean, hide behind some made-up name. Which is funny because... Uh, Both Timothy Hutton's character in the last movie, The Dark Half, and Stephen King have used pseudonyms in their writing. Yes, and so 
Because she's taking it out, he starts reading this, and he's thrown back into a flashback of what made him write the story originally. And it was when they were moving, I guess they were moving into it. It's like kind of like their mountain cabin type thing. And she's moving the old furniture, and she finds a quote-unquote secret window. Hiding behind a desk or something like that. And she says, I'm going to put my garden down right below this, so it'll become a secret garden from a secret window. And it's really interesting because when he comes back into reality, uh-huh. his dog turns and looks at him yeah. as if he was watching the same flashback. Uh-huh. It was very interesting. Well done. Also, we find out that his wife has feelings. Something bad is happening because Stephen always has to put someone with some kind of psychic ability in there. Yeah. So she calls and she's just like, you know, what's going on? I feel like something is wrong. And he's just like, you know, do you remember this story? And she's like, not one of my favorites. Yeah. Because it's about a man killing his wife. Yeah. And it's called Secret Window. So she has to know that it was written about her. And it talks about her garden. And yeah, totally. It's... It's about killing his wife. That's yes. what the story is about. And he doesn't really remember writing it either. Like it what caused him ago. to write it. Yeah, because she asks him, I think it might be in this telephone conversation or a later one when he talks about this John Shooter guy who showed up. And she's like, is this like the other time? She it brings up twice. They never explicitly say it, but he denies it both times through the movie. The implication is, is that in the past he has plagiarized. This isn't that time. He said it happened once, never again. He can't remember if he was influenced to write the story because he was drunk at that point. Yes, this that's was why when he, he can't was an remember. alcoholic. Yeah, when he was doing Jack Daniels, Ah-ha-ha, Stephen, Stephen King is obviously dealing with a lot of personal anxieties and demons in these movies. <laughs> very, very obviously, we are effectively Stephen King's therapist, basically. Yes. You think it's possible that like, I might have been influenced by anybody or anything at the time? Other than Jack Daniels? I know that part, maybe, hence the question. And, yeah, it's interesting that Chris brings that up. I actually think they bring it up more than twice. But the point is, it's weird to me that they bring up this idea of that he did plagiarize at one point, but they never fully explain it. Yeah, they don't ever talk about it. It doesn't really ever come up. It, it's brought up, I think it's brought up more than twice. No, but I mean, I mean, they don't, like, it's, they don't it doesn't into enter detail. into the plot. They don't tell you who it is, what the circumstances were, none of that. Just that it's happened before, so people have reason to doubt him. Of course, the only person that should know about it is Maria Bello, Amy. He starts talking to her oh, about... his fixer knows about it, too. Because yes. his fixer's the one who paid him off and told him to get away and never come back. Mm-hmm. So it is three times, yeah. And so he starts asking Amy about her current relationship, and he's like, and she's like, no, we're not together. Which was written specifically to make him hopeful, thinking they're yeah. not together. Is it, how is how is Ted? And she's like, we're not together. And he's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And you he know. says, I'm doing a Snoopy dance. <laughs> which I love. It's really cute. It's a yes. great visual. Uh, Johnny Depp, why are you so fucking charming? <sighs> Probably why you're such an asshole is because you're so charming. It's funny that Chris says that he's charming because I felt this entire movie that he was just phoning it in. 
Yeah. Which is part of the reason why. He's just why... naturally charming is what I'm saying. Like, he, he doesn't have to work very hard to be charming. <laughs> well, because he's attractive. <laughs> no, but I mean, when he says stuff like that. Well, but that is a big complaint for me about this movie. Yeah. It feels like Johnny Depp doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. So why should I give a fuck? And I actually, re-watching it, I was like, this is why. It, but this the problem is a big is, component of why I didn't like it. Right, but the problem is, is that he's playing a character who doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> so what do you want him to do? I don't know, but something about his performance, I'm just like, dude, you are phoning it in right now. Oh, he has some fun moments, like one that's coming up. I'll tell you about when we get there. Uh, and uh, she's talking about the house that she's now in and kind of sort of living with Timothy Hutton in. He's just yeah. like, she says something about it's a nice house and she and he goes, yeah, I know, that's why I bought it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is bullshit. If you're the bread maker, I don't think you should have to give up your house to usually, a person who cheated on you. Right, I understand, but usually that's what happens. That's bullshit. Oftentimes... When there is a divorce and somebody has to take the house, usually it's the husband who leaves. Uh, but the other thing is, is when you're working in, when you're in a relationship and one of you is the breadwinner, like there's a reason why prenups exist is because the default is just to split everything 50-50. Like the re that reason is, is because you are in a partnership, right? Like you guys have come to an agreement that this is going to be your source of money and then you guys decide what you want to do. Uh, who's responsible for what, uh, who contributes what, but yeah, it gets split 50-50. So likely they valued the house and then he got that much more money in the settlement. Well, thankfully neither of us make a ton of money, right. so we don't have to do a prenup. <laughs> and we won't get divorced, God. <laughs> of course not, but I'm just saying neither of us are rich, so right. it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> um, okay. As soon as he hangs up the phone, he's just like stupid, stupid, stupid. Like he's really annoyed with himself because he, he was kind of a a little bit of a dick yeah. uh, to her. I don't think he was unjustified. No, at all. But he's just like stupid, stupid, stupid because he's annoyed with himself because he wants to be his best self when he's talking to her. Yeah. So that she'll come back, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. Then he's visited again by John Shooter, and John Shooter again. Is just like, you know, you stole my story. And he's just like, you lie. And he goes, no, I don't. It was published for the first time in June 1995 in a magazine. Nice try, Mr. Shooter, but I beat you by two years. So if anybody's got a bitch about plagiarism, it's me. You lie. No, I don't. Yeah, he's like, when, when did you write it? And he's like, such and such, 1997. And he's like, well, oh, there you go. I, I first got it published in 1994. It's in this issue of uh, Ellery Magazine. Um, Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine is what it was called. And so, ha, 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 ha. And find the magazine and you have your proof. And he's like, it's not my job to find the proof. It's your job. You're the one that's claiming you wrote it before me. I told you when I wrote it and you're making a claim 1994, then you get me the magazine. And he's like, uh, it's like, it's, I can't, I don't have it. It's at the house and my wife's there. And he's like, wait a minute, you go over there and get it. And he's like, well, we're not together anymore. And he's like, huh? And then Johnny Depp says, divorce, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, divorce. You ignorant hick. It's so cute. <laughs> That's not my house, that's hers. What the hell does that mean? What do you think it means, you ignorant hick? I'm in the middle of a divorce. 
D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Divorce. It's really good. I thought that that was a lot of fun. Another really great line that he has. Yes. And so Shooter gives him three days, I think. Some amount of time. To get it and show it. Otherwise, shit's going to happen and we're going to settle it ourselves. You know, basically he's going to say, I'm going to beat your ass and probably kill you. During this exchange, somebody drives on by. Shooter waves at him. Because he's been in town or whatever, and he recognized that guy waves at him who waves back and drives off. And Mort just kind of like looks at him like, what the fuck was that? Um, which is important later. Yes, it is. So then Johnny Depp goes back inside and he's talking to his dog. And he's like, okay, I'm going to call her. I'm going to write some pages and then I'll take a nap. But he doesn't. He yeah. just goes to sleep because he loves to sleep because he's depressed. He's extremely depressed. Then he finds, he wakes up from his nap to find that his dog is dead. It's so tragic. But he doesn't call the police. Is that what happened at that point? Yes. Because I, okay, we must have missed the point when he tells his dog not to be discouraged. Oh, yeah, Chico, I skipped that. Don't yeah. be discouraged. Chico, don't be discouraged. Yes. It's Jose Feliciano. It's the theme song to Chico and the Man. Chico, don't be discouraged. The man, he ain't so hard to understand. FYI. I actually wrote that down. <laughs> I didn't understand it. I wrote, don't be discouraged, question mark? A song, question mark? Like, what was that? Yeah, that's the theme to Chico and the Man. And uh, Chico is, fuck, what's his face? Freddie Prince. Freddie Prince Jr.'s dad is Chico from Chico and the Man. He committed suicide while the show was still on. Little fun little note for you. <laughs> I know that because fame told me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the characters in fame is Puerto Rican. And uh-huh. so Freddie Prince is his like idol. Uh-huh. And then Freddie Prince kills himself. And then he ha- he does like a meltdown in class. Oh, about it. I've never seen fame. <gasps> How have you never seen fame? Uh, when I think of fame, I think of David Bowie. Fame! I'm gonna live forever! Yeah, I know that song, but I, <laughs> I instead think of the David Bowie song. Boo. Anyway. Fame! He doesn't call the police, which I think is an indication- He does go to the police. Later. But when his dog is- Oh, you're right, you're right. He he goes there. Yeah, and the guy's like, fucking whatever. I don't even know if it's a crime. And he's like, well, surely it's at least destruction of personal property. Yeah, and the cop Animal is cruelty. doing needlepoint, and yeah. he's just like, oh, this helps with arthritis. And Johnny Depp's just like, what the fuck? You don't even care that this guy killed my dog. Yeah, uh-huh. He calls his fixer. Yes. Which I don't really know what his job is, but he pays, He makes he's him pay like by the hour. He's like a private detective, would be my guess. Okay. That's my that's the best guess because he's not a lawyer, he's not an agent, he's like a private detective. Okay. Who basically he's a paid strongman. He does investigations. He talks around town. He'll he, he's um he acts as a bodyguard. He makes sure that you're safe. That kind of stuff. So it's like a mix between a PI and a bodyguard. 
And they clearly aren't close because he says something about his wife and he's like, oh, we're not together anymore. And he goes, oh, an amicable divorce? And Johnny Depp's like, not remotely. (laughs) And he's like, look, I need you to do whatever it is that you did before to get rid of this guy. And he's just like, oh, you want me to give him an obscene fortune? (laughs) Yes. Um, So then he goes to the house to check it out for Johnny Depp, and when Johnny Depp gets there, he's asleep inside the car. And he's pissed. <laughs> he's like, what the fuck? Like, you're supposed to be here to protect me. And he goes, relax, Hemingway. I was only out for ten minutes. <laughs> I, I think it's a fun little scary moment where he's like, he sees his head kind of lulled over against the window, and he reaches out, and he taps it, and then Charles S. Dutton, who plays this character, is like, ah! And then Johnny Depp is, ah! It's just it's a really cute kind of false scare. I wouldn't call it a jump scare. No. It's just a false scare. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you scared the shit out of me. Hey, hey, I'm sorry about that. It's really funny because they're having a conversation and he says something about, you don't want me to go in there again, do you? <laughs> and the next shot is him coming out of the last room and he's just like, you're good. It's clean. It's clear. Yeah. And then it's funny because he's like, look, I'm going to find this guy and I'm going to use the word we a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great little dialogue exchange there. I'll stop in for a little freak me out chat. Use the word we a lot. We know what you're doing. We wanted to stop. We're watching you. Yeah. Trust me, he'll hit the road so hard, it'll hit back. And But eventually he leaves. And as he's leaving, as his car is pulling out, Johnny Depp hears something. So he grabs a stoker from the fireplace. Right, but he's like, shit, because it's just when uh, Charles Dutton is leaving. And so he goes looking around, and he's all super nervous, and he ends up just attacking the the vanity in his in his bathroom. And he's like, I killed a mirror. <laughs> and my shower door. And my shower door. <laughs> it was a mouse in the tub, which he takes outside and sees Shooter. Shooter's there just waiting for him. And so they have they have a little exchange again, and he says he he demands at this point, I think it is, when he demands that Mort write his ending. Yes, I want you to fix it. My ending. That's Mine. what he wants. If they can't resolve this, the solution is you fix the ending. Mine was perfect. And he recites it from memory, and it's about how he ended up killing uh, the wife. And it, this doesn't make sense. What doesn't? If if John Shooter is really somebody who's accusing Mort of Mort Rainey of plagiarism, it doesn't make sense that his solution would be for Mort to write the perfect ending. Because Shooter already wrote it, so it's not like he wants Mort's writing skills to write the perfect ending. And he wants Mort to put Mort's name on it when he re-releases it. So it's not like he wants the credit. So it doesn't make a lot of sense if John Shooter were actually a real person. I can see that. But if he's crazy, like, yeah, we think he is. But this is a little little peek into what the ending actually is. Yes. Um, He also accuses him of like, why didn't you get the magazine? You were there. And you're like, oh, shit. Now he knows where he's been, too. Yeah, and he's kind of threatening his wife, and he goes, my wife, why don't we just leave her out of this? Yeah. And when he actually, we didn't talk about it, but when he goes to visit 
the house and he sees Ted and Amy leaving the house, he actually says, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife anymore. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife anymore. Paraphrasing from the talking heads. Yes. Once in a lifetime. Yep. Water flowing underground. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. Such a great song. I'll, now, though, I fucking hate this because I love the talking heads. I hate that when I hear this song, I can't help but think of Kermit and a giant shoulder padded sport coat or whatever singing the song and you may tell yourself this is not my beautiful house and you may tell yourself this is not my beautiful wife letting the days go by let the water hold me down letting the days go by water flowing underground when the days go by <laughs> water flowing underground <laughs> into the blue again this is weird. I don't know why they did that. <laughs> it exists. <laughs> it does. Anyway, uh, so then the next thing that happens is their house burns down. Yes. And so uh, Johnny Depp has to go and meet up with the lawyers and his ex-wife, kind of, and Timothy Hutton is there. I got incredulous about this, watching this, because I so fucking hate Timothy Hutton's character Ted in this. He sucks. I hate him so much. He is just fucking awful. He's always inserting himself. For being into him. Right. He's always inserting himself into everything. And it's like, I can understand if you're like, hey, listen, this is my wife now, and we had kids together, and this is our home, but you're just dating her. Mm-hmm. You don't have any relationship beyond that. It wasn't your house that burned down. It was technically still Johnny Depp's house. Mm-hmm. And for you to insert yourself into this whole fucking thing, your only job is to sit there with a fucking smile. That's all you need to be doing right now. Mm-hmm. For you to get mad at Johnny Depp for being irritated that his house burned down is the Biggest piece of bullshit ever, and I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Johnny Depp has some fun lines here. Uh, Bother you if I answer one or two of these questions, Ted? Yeah. <laughs> he also says, do you actually intend to rubberneck right now? <laughs> um, you have no right to look at my belongings, uh, because that's what they're looking at, is a list of the belongings that were lost yeah. in the fire. So the next major thing that happens is John Turturro calls him. And says, meet where we met that other time, which is just off the road, but it's kind of a secluded place. And that dude's truck is there. The dude that drove by and waved, Mm -hmm. his truck is there. And he's sitting in the front seat. And he looks in the front seat, and the dude's throat is slit. And then in the back seat is Charles S. Dutton with a screwdriver in his head, or vice versa. I can't remember which was which. He's like, holy shit. John Turturro's like, this is, you brought these people into this. This is all your fault. It was just supposed to be between the two of us. And when he's like trying to get out of there, he's like, I wouldn't leave. I left more evidence about you in here than you know. So you need to take care of this. And then you can bring me the magazine, which he had asked for from the publisher. 
You can bring me the magazine once you pick it up at the UPS store or whatever it is. And so he drives the truck off the cliff and into the lake with the two bodies in there. But he not before he gets his watch stuck on the gear shift. And now it's in the truck at the bottom of the lake, which is kind of a red herring because it never comes up again. Right. Especially with how the movie ends. So things have gone really bad. When Johnny Depp asks him in this moment, okay, well, what if you, what were, are you going to do? You just killed these two people. What are you going to do when I prove to you that I wrote it first? And he's like, well, I'll turn myself in. But he says he'll kill himself before a trial because that kind of crazy man has no reason or excuse to live. Because mm-hmm. that means he's crazy. Then I turn myself in. But I take care of myself before a trial, Mr. Rainey, because if things turn out that way, then I suppose I am crazy. And that kind of crazy man has no reason or excuse to live. Which, okay. (laughs) So then again, he's talking to his ex-wife and they're talking about stuff and she's just like you know why are you so surprised by me leaving you blah 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 and he's like well it was news to me yeah and she's like for the last two years of our marriage you didn't see me yeah you looked through me you weren't there and (laughs) they keep talking and they're they're getting heated and at some point johnny dub's just like well i guess you shouldn't have fucked him then (laughs) Talking about Timothy Hutton. Yeah, uh-huh. And we keep kind of flashing back to that scene where he bursts in on them. Yes, he keeps thinking about that. Yeah. Then we get uh, a really fun scene where Johnny Depp is talking to himself. Yeah. And in fact, imagines He's like himself. narrating what's going on and then talking to this narration. And then he sees himself and then it's two versions of Johnny Depp talking. And it's because he's found the hat. He's found John Shooter's hat outside of his house. And he's just like, why would he leave it here? And he starts talking to himself, trying to figure it out. And he goes, wait a minute, why would he do that? Think about it. How? I don't know. Maybe he wants you to wear that. Why? To confuse you. Yeah. uh And he uses the word pilgrim, which was used by Shooter. Shooter. Repeatedly. And I should also mention, earlier before Dutton died... He said the word pilgrim. Dutton did. When he was on Johnny Depp's side. Yeah. uh There was at some point, there was some conversation where Dutton was like totally buying into his conspiracy theory about this shooter guy. And. He used the term pilgrim. He uses the term Uh pilgrim. And then Johnny Depp gets really mad at himself and he's like, I don't need to listen to this shit from you. (laughs) Talking to himself. And himself says, this is how it happens. This is how this happens to people. They go crazy because they sit there and they talk to themselves. And then when he looks in the mirror, he sees the back of his head. So obviously Johnny Depp's going crazy at this point. And then when he turns around, the reflection in the mirror also turns around. So we see both of his faces. And then Shooter shows up and he says, I exist because you made me. I did everything you told me to do. Yeah, this is a very Fight Club moment here. Yes. But like a real Fight Club moment, unlike the dark half. Yes. So I thought this was really interesting because I think it. I think it's interesting that the other guy in the dark half is actually real or at least made to be real. 
but he's completely fabricated in this version of the story that King is telling about a writer with an alternate personality who also writes, you know, that whole thing. Especially since Thad actually literally made up George, but George is the real one. But in this one, it, I, I don't know if there's anything there. It's a little bit wobbly, but it's interesting to think about, I think. And he's just like, well, what am I supposed to do? And he's like, you got to fix the ending and you got to kill the wife. And the the camera. That's the ending that Shooter wrote. Yes. And the camera work kind of shows us that we're in mirror land now because now it's no longer reality for Johnny Depp. It's now John Shooter's reality. Yeah. So we're now in mirror land. Do you remember why why Amy shows up? She's worried about him, I think. Yeah. So she shows up. And she finds a, a, a she finds the dog she didn't know about the dog being dead. She finds the whiskey, which tells us that he's been drinking, which uh-huh. is what leads to this evil side. Yeah, the dark half. Yeah, that if he you will. Remember. Yeah, uh huh. And she shows up, and this place is trashed. And she goes upstairs to his loft area, and it just says "shooter" fucking everywhere. Shooter, 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 shooter. And then the door to the bathroom swings closed, and he's behind it, and it reveals the words "shoot her." Uh, and this a whole cheesy. scene <laughs> is filled with a flying camera and yeah. zooms and fast motion, and it's just like, what is happening here? Like, I know we're supposed to be in the Mirrorland, the world of madness, but yeah. like. It's stupid. <laughs> so what ends up happening is he but ends up, yeah. When it says shoot her, what was the first thing you thought of? Shoot her! From shoot Jurassic her! Park. her! Yeah. <laughs> shoot her! Shoot her! Which did come out like 10 years before this movie, so. Anyway, he attacks her and... He's fucking her up. He stabs her in the leg and she's crawling outside. And this is around the time when Ted shows up too. And he lets her call out to him and he hides. And when Ted comes outside, he hits him with a shovel and hits him again and then chops his head off with the shovel, which is something that Shooter said earlier. You look like the type of man who wants to cut a man's head off with the shovel. He strikes me as the kind of guy who's on the lookout for a head he can knock off with a shovel actually happens at this moment and then he presumably we don't know kills maria bello too i say presumably because we don't actually really see it but it happens it happens there's no mistaking it it's not an inference it's 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 just shy of explicit they just don't show it and, and then it he says buries it says the same line that we've heard multiple times so far in the in the movie uh, it's supposed to be the end of the story I'm sure that in time her death will be a mystery even, even to, me. to me because it will be to Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp is going to not understand what happened. It's John Shooter who's going to know what happened. Right, but that doesn't stop him from being happy. It's from this point on, he's happy. He goes into town and everyone's really uncomfortable around him and we don't know why exactly. And then it's not until the sheriff shows up and is like, You know, I know what you did. The whole town knows what you did. We just can't prove it. But it's only a matter of time. And this is, I guess, what makes you think about the watch being in the car at the bottom of the lake. But they don't reference it. They don't hint that it may be coming back or anything like that. And then the camera goes out through the secret window as we hear 
that last line being narrated again, and it focuses in on the garden, which Stocks is now corn, growing corn. Which is another line from the story. He took a... a ear corn from the steaming bowl. Yeah. From the uh-huh. steaming bowl. I know I can do it, Todd Downey said, helping himself to another ear of corn from the steaming bowl. I'm sure that in time, every bit of her will be gone, and her death will be a mystery. Even to me. He's actually eating corn when the sheriff is talking to him. And can I just say that I'm not surprised that Johnny Depp isn't normal enough to know how to use corn holders? He sticks them in kind of diagonally yeah. and then holds it like this. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of sticking it into both sides. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's how the movie ends. Yes. Lightning round. So an example of how Johnny Depp just is not fucking trying. When he finds the dog, the dead dog, he shouts out into the wilderness, I'll get you for this! Just like that. I'll get you for this! Yeah. uh I'll get you for this! I don't actually give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it felt like the entire goddamn movie for me. I also love one of Dutton's lines when he's like, he didn't care about the dog. He must be a cat person. <laughs> when he's talking to Dutton at his house, he's like, I, in the meantime, I'm going to go stay at this motel. And it's the motel where his wife was having an affair. And he's like, you know it. And Joy Depp's just like, yeah, I know the place. <laughs> wow. Throughout the movie, Johnny Depp's character is trying to st- quit smoking. And he keeps talking to himself. And like at one point... He takes out his pack, sees that he has one left, sits it down, leaves, stops after he goes outside of his house, and then runs back up yeah, to get it. And we don't it. see it. We just hear it because the camera's focused on the pack of cigarettes. I thought that was a pretty neat And he's trick. got a fun line where he says, um, I'm just going to smoke Fuck the hell it. out of it. Yep, And then I'm going to go to the store and buy another pack and smoke the hell out of that, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm just going to smoke. I'm just going to totally smoke. Finish these. Go to store, get a brand new pack. Smoke the shit out of that. So, Ellery Queen. Interesting things about Ellery Queen. Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine is the name of the magazine where it was published, where the story Secret Window was published. Ellery Queen is a character and an author. It's a little bit of a mix. There is a television series called Ellery Queen that starred Jim Hutton as Ellery Queen, who is Timothy Hutton's father. That's just a little a little bit of a side note. But more importantly, Ellery Queen is a pseudonym of two writers, Frederick Danae and Manfred Bennington Lee, that they used. He was also a character in those stories, but it was written by Ellery Queen, who wasn't a real person. It was just a pseudonym. And then it was eventually commissioned out to give other people the opportunity to write under that name as well, just not including the character. Also, interestingly, Frederick Danae's real name is Daniel Nathan. Frederick Danae itself is a pseudonym. Manfred Bennington Lee, also a pseudonym of Emmanuel Benjamin Lepofsky. These two men are cousins. They had pseudonyms, and then together they wrote stories under another pseudonym. So it's very, very fitting that that's the reference that they make in this movie. At one point, Shooter says to Johnny Depp, I don't think you're well at all. 
And then later the wife says the same thing. I don't think you're very well at all. Who says it the first time? It's Shooter at first. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Then it's the wife. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck that's supposed to mean. Well, I think what we're hearing is that we're getting we're getting these phrases that he gives to Shooter from elsewhere in his life. That's how he builds this Shooter personality. Just like Charles S. Dutton is the originator of the term Pilgrim. But he gives that to Shooter. No, Shooter had it first. Yeah, that we see, but he's known Charles S. Dutton and Amy a lot longer than he's known Shooter. Oh, I thought he imagined that conversation with Dutton. I thought that was the implication, that it was Maybe. fake. Because either that's way, that's when Dutton but agrees either, with him. Right, but either way, it's in his head is the whole point. It's in his head. I'm that's fairly how certain that Dutton is dead by the time he Maybe. has that conversation. Maybe. Inside Ellery Queen magazine, we see a story in the table of contents called The Long Walk. That's a book written by Richard Bachman, Stephen King's pseudonym. So more pseudonymous connections. I like that at one point he finds the cigarettes that Shooter's been smoking and they're Paul Malls and he calls him a, calls him a cracker bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and when he's in the store, he's looking at the Paul Malls and remembering that that's what Shooter smokes. And then the dude who's stalking them turns to him like, did you want a pack? Like he's been in there and ordered them before. Yes, I, I like that too. It's a good call. In the scene that we see several times where Johnny Depp bursts in on them, in order to get that reaction and that frenzy, so Johnny Depp comes in, he bursts open the door, and he just starts yelling at them. But in order to get the most authentic reaction possible from Timothy Hutton and Maria Bello in bed, Kep, the director, had them just sitting in bed for at least 15 minutes. It didn't tell them when Johnny Depp was going to go in, didn't cue them, and then when the door burst open, when they were not prepared... Uh, static sounds were blaring through speakers and the lights all went on and flashing. And so it just caused this whole disorientation to get that reaction out of them. And everyone's yelling at each other and all of that. Nobody knows what to do. So Kelsey, what do you think it's rotten tomato score is? 60. 46%. Depp is quirkily entertaining, but the movie runs out of steam by the end is all they had to say about it. It's Metacritic is also 46 and its cinema score is C+. Good. Do you think that's exactly how it should be rated? I'd probably give it a 50. It's not like it's terrible. It's it it's like the dark half. It's kind of boring. It kind of goes nowhere. I'd say it's a better thriller and it's a better mystery because there is Depp, at least a mystery. Johnny Depp just is not fucking doing a drop of acting in this. I am going to give it a 62. Well, good for you. That's one of the biggest gaps in our rating I think we've had in a very long time. Yeah, taking a look here, there was a 10-point gap, and we are still here. You gave it 50. I gave it a 60. Uh, there was a 10-point gap in Summer Camp. <laughs> Remember Summer Camp? I do. Jesus. Oh, there was a 12-point gap in Zodiac. You gave it an 85, and I gave it a 97. So that's another... That, that's a big one, too. It's the same exact size, 12 points. <laughs> like I said, I think it's it's underrated. And it's not great. It isn't great. And I don't think you need to see it. But it's it is boring. It, it is doesn't not, do anything. It is not a 46. It is not a 46. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. That is 2004's Secret Window. 
Stick around because we're going to talk a little bit about the most recent two episodes of Castle Rock. That's episodes six and seven, Filter and the Queen. So we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But first, some housekeeping. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? So our birthdays are in the month of September. So we're going to do two weeks of birthday movies. Yeah. The first week being the 80s slasher Happy Birthday to Me. Uh Uh-huh. Because, you know, we love 80s slashers. Yeah. And Happy Death Day. Yay. Really? It was all right. I thought it was fun. It was fine. It dragged on way too long. It is too end. long. That's I remember that. Yeah. We saw it when it first came out to theaters. We saw it so in it's, theaters. It's been a while, and I can't really remember how I felt about it. I remember I liked it, but it, they just cut off like the last 20 minutes. They'd be fine. I remember disliking the montage in the middle of the film. Yeah. A lot. Like, that really took me out in the movie. I could have sworn you liked that. Mm-mm. Hmm. Interesting. I liked a lot of it. I'm I'm I just remember I was disappointed by the ending and I hated the montage. All right, that is next week. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com where you can browse all of our episodes and a list of every movie we have ever had on the show. Leave a comment there, share your thoughts on the movies, or recommend one or two for us to cover in a future episode. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at at Pod Cemetery. I'll add comments. If if I think of them while I'm editing the episode, Kelsey will sometimes live tweet movies that she watches. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. And above all, thank you very much for listening. Before we shove off, this is where we're getting into Castle Rock spoiler time. So we'll see you later if you don't want spoilers. Those of you who did watch it, stick around. Kelsey. Yes. The last two episodes of Castle Rock episode six filter Henry's son visits from Boston and a funeral stirs up unsettling memories and the queen memories haunt Ruth Deaver. What'd you think? The last episode, the queen queen. episode is fantastic, but I'm going to get there in a minute. Yeah. You, I mean, you heard me while we were watching it. I was like, I really, really like this. Yes. It's very well done. Yeah, it's so, very, very good. All right, let's talk about Filter first, then. So in Filter, the big things I remember from that episode, because that we we do watch them when they come out, so we watched that last week, yeah, so I'm kind weird. of having trouble remembering it. But from what I remember, the big things that happen are that Henry Deaver... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That is a frightening moment. We Okay, so we learn about the secret... Of what that ringing is that he hears. What the doctors think may be tinnitus, but it's not consistent, so they're not sure. It is, according to his father and these two homeless men he finds, <laughs> including Culkin. <laughs> What's his name? Which Culkin is it? Kieran? Rory. Rory, Rory. Culkin. Yeah. Including Rory Culkin, that it's the voice of God. Rory Culkin doesn't seem as sure as the other guy. He's sure enough to... Deafen he seems himself. nervous about it. I think he's. Yeah. I think he's going to kill the other guy and save Henry Deaver. Right. We don't get all we get is Henry gets shoved into this isolation booth by a man who's gone deaf by doing this to himself. Yeah. Because he says, "Now all I hear is the word of God." Yeah. 
and that's what's going to happen to you. But there's a look of malice on his face when he shoves him in there. Yeah. He's excited to do this to someone. And well, I no, think- I th- I no, I think he's excited to share the voice of God. I think he's I think he's a little uh what's the word sadistic. But Henry's dad found out about this completely independent. So it's not like this is that I'm dude's idea. I'm fairly certain his dad is just crazy, is right. what we're being told. <laughs> right, right. But it's not like this dude who's like a PhD or whatever, it's not like he just decided one day that I'm going to convince people that this is the case. Right, no, he I was think, convinced by... I think Henry's dad Henry's did. dad, yeah. who was crazy, and I think he kind of drove this other guy crazy as well, and I think the other guy had sadistic tendencies. And so I think he's a little stoked to be doing this to poor Henry. And I think what I predict is that Rory Culkin is going to kill the deaf guy... Okay. And let Henry out. Interesting. Because I think I think the look on Rory's face is that he wants to believe and he kind of But believes. he doesn't believe enough for this. He d- no, yeah. yeah. I don't think he's okay right. with him shoving a guy who was not willing to yeah. do it. He he shoved him in without his consent. And I think that's what's going to be like Rory's character is going to be like, "Oh fuck no. I'm not doing this." And then the other big thing was that Pangborn came home to the kid. The kid, right? That's what that's what, how he's referred to. Yes, as the kid, covered in blood and kind of in a maniacal way. He says, "Why did you let him keep me keep me in his trunk?" And it's trying to lead you down a path of believing that he has hurt. Sissy Spacek. Yeah, that he, this is how he's getting his revenge. If you remember in the previous episode, he said he can fix her. If only that dude leaves him alive. And he needed to do something else, right? What did Pangborn go and do? He needed to get the car. He needed to get something out of the trunk. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. We don't know what. Yeah. And... I'm a little dismayed that the show would give you such a, what's that word when they on purpose trick you? Red herring? But it's not really red herring, I guess. I guess that's what you'd call it. But the tr- the show definitely- Yes, a misdirect. Thank mm-hmm. you. The show definitely tried to misdirect its audience there. Yeah. And I don't really well, appreciate we still, that. We still don't- really know what's going on because of the stuff that happens in Queen. It's one of those episodes, all the best shows do it, (laughs) at least lately. You'll see it in things like The Leftovers. The Leftovers does it too, where a big thing happens at the end of an episode. I mean, hell, even um, Game of Thrones does it, where a big thing happens at the end of an episode, and then the whole next episode is just dedicated to one specific experience that might explain that big thing, but you still don't know what the big thing is until the end of that episode. So you got to sit through the whole episode not knowing how the last episode ended. But it is extremely well done. So So well done. It's done from Sissy Spacek's point of view. Yeah. And we get to see all of the memories that she has been having in those moments of where it seems to the rest of the world. Yeah. She's out of it. She's not here. She doesn't know what's happening. And we get to see what she saw. Yeah. So first of all, we find out that Henry's dad, the reverend, knows that there's something going on. We don't know that they're cheating on him. 
but something going on between Sissy Spacek and... Because what what I think we know now is that her and Pangborn, like, dated or something, and then he left, and she ended up marrying the man she married, and then when Pangborn came back, he did eventually marry somebody else, but then that lady died, but aside from that, there was always kind of a flirtation. No, when he left, he left afterwards. Oh, after that? Yeah, he came back as an old man. And when we see them at the end of this episode, that's him coming back. Hmm. And he'd been back for a couple months, but he hadn't gotten up the courage to say hello to her. He's just the sheriff in the town at this point. And she comes to him. She confides in, in him. They're friends. But they're looking at each other during a service. And the reverend sees it. And you can tell he's very upset and, like, physically angry about it. And yeah. he ends up trying to kill himself, we find out, with a gun. Supposedly. In the middle of the woods. And instead, he hears the voice of God. And so he excitedly takes his wife and son out to the middle of the woods with a blanket and a picnic basket. But inside the picnic basket is the gun. And he explains to them how he was going to kill himself. But he stopped because he heard the voice of God. And now I'm going to share that with you or whatever. And yeah. so dad's gone nuts. And Sissy Spacek's character is attributing this to schizophrenia. Yeah. And we don't know yet. We don't know if he did have schizophrenia. We don't know if this really is the voice of God. Right. Maybe it's the voice of an alien. Maybe it's the voice of the devil. We right. don't know. We don't know if the voice is real, basically. But what it is, we yeah. kind of have confirmation that it is because Deaver can hear that sound. Right, but he doesn't hear the sound until after Sissy Spacek tells him. To just tell him you hear it. As a child, true. Yes. But after whatever it is that happened, mm -hmm. happened, and Henry has lost his memory, he still has that ringing in his ear. Right. But number one, it could be psychosomatic. And number two, it could be a result of being like the child of somebody who has but dementia. But blood. Oh, that I get the fuck. You're right. There's no... <laughs> It's not hereditary. <laughs> I mean, dementia can be, but <laughs> yeah. obviously they're not dementia related by blood. Dementia can be hereditary, okay, but they yeah, are yeah, not yeah. by blood, right, so right. it can't have been passed down. But it could be down. the trauma that's caused him to Absolutely. psychosomatically experience there, uh, this. There are a bunch of different things you could and, attribute and it and to. And since he doesn't have the memory of what his father was trying to do, he just knows he hears something, but he doesn't know what it is. But that doesn't, you know, that it could very well be psychosomatic. Right. So... Anyway, we, we basically spend this entire episode traveling with Sissy Spacek through all of her memories. In the, in the previous episode, Filter, we find out that she hides these chess pieces that Pangborn gave her around the house because when she's slipping back through time in her memories, she can see if she finds one of them, she holds on to it. And she remembers, okay, it's now, it's not then, this is just a memory. And that's how she finds her way back. She leaves them like breadcrumbs all around the house. It's very powerful. It's very powerful. And it's very sad because what we end up finding out is that the kid did nothing to her. However, the kid is aware that when she looks at him, she sees her husband. And he knows things. And he uses that. Right. And it's not like- What he's using it for, right. I don't know. And everything he says could be a guess. 
That's yes. the thing. Like, what is the combination in the the safe upstairs? And he's like, it's your birthday. He doesn't need to know her birthday to guess that it's her birthday. And like things like that. He basically is is channeling the Reverend and acting like he is the Reverend, which only confuses her more, but she still knows what she needs to get. She, she ends needs up, to get the bullets for the gun. Yeah. She ends up stabbing the kid, which is why he's covered in blood. Yeah, it's not her blood, which we thought it was. She ends up shooting Pangborn. Because she finds the bullets, which were... This is the crazy thing. Okay, so Pangborn tells her, pack a bag, get the fuck out of there. He's obviously very dangerous. Get your boy and go. She's like, I can't leave him. He's like, I'm not telling you to leave him. I'm telling you to bring him with you, but you have to leave your husband. At least pack the bag. But she packs the bag, including the gun and the bullets, and chickens out, basically. Which, no judgment here. I can totally understand how that can happen to somebody. It's awful. But she doesn't go through with it. And she unpacks the, the, the suitcase, but does not unpack the bullets because she shoved them in like this little compartment in the back of the, of the suitcase that's the suitcase that was used to bury the dog earlier on. And so she digs up the dog and finds the bullets, loads the gun, hides in the shed. And when somebody comes to the shed, she fires and it's Pangborn. And we get this flashback to him showing up on her door and saying something that is mentioned earlier on in the episode. And and it, it's not a flashback. It's her living reliving that moment. It, because of her dementia and she has problems with her memories, right? And he says, you know what? I came back. I know you've been here for, a f I've been here for a few months. You probably already knew that. I just wanted to let you know, I came back for you. You're the reason why I came back. And he admits that he's in love with her. And then she, they hold each other and she says, never leave. Don't leave. Don't leave me. And so the question now is, can she actually travel through time? That's the question. Is she actually traveling through time? She sees the chess piece in the house. She doesn't see it. She's hugging him. We see it as the audience. Okay. But either way, she ignores it. So we know that she's just reliving this moment, but she's carrying over the emotions from what would be the future into this moment in the past. And that's why she gets so emotional. And that's why she says, don't leave. She's talking to him dying on the floor. And I think it's beautiful. It's, it is. But. Yeah. I, I think that episode is brilliant. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. But. But. I don't know that that's what I'm looking for in a Stephen King TV series. I think it's great. I'm glad I saw it. I'm, ex I'm still going to keep watching. But this isn't The Leftovers. I'm not watching this for an emotional experience. I'm watching this as a horror experience. And so far, I gotta say, it hasn't really delivered on the horror. What about Shawshank Redemption? The Green Mile? Absolutely. Like, he, he doesn't he writes only science write fiction. Yeah. But I feel like the first commercial made it seem like it was going to be a horror. No, I no, I think this is going to go more places. This is just setting up there's something going on with Sissy Spacek's character. And it's more than just that she has dementia. Like I said, I think it is beautiful. I think it was very well and done. It's, but it's all, it's all in service of explaining what's going on in a beautiful way. But she still has this superpower, basically. 
And but I would. I, I think she tra- she's traveling through time. I think that's what's happening. I would like some horror elements. Yeah, they need to deliver. But more importantly, this is supernatural. That's what King does. It's supernatural. All right. All right. That is episodes six and seven of Castle Rock. There are still more episodes. There are 11 in total, apparently. No, 10 in total this season. So there are three more. Do you want to just watch the next two and then talk about it again and then talk about the finale? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So we'll skip next week. We'll do the week after that. And then we'll do the final episode after that airs. So please come on back again. Pod Cemetery. Go to the website. Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you very much. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, do you have any parting wisdom to share with the audience? You know, the only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story. The ending. And this one is very good. This one's perfect. Uh, it's a week all about writers that Stephen King thinly veils to reveal that <laughs> this week it's all about character. Mm, fuck. You cold bitch. <laughs> well, you better not have skipped out and, and not given me my, you're two weeks behind on rent. But. But. Oh, what? Vinny, your daddy never has anything ready. You know what? Dirty little stinker, that little rat. I had to go get him. That's what Alexis' machine would do. He'd go get him, cut off his pecker, and shove it in his little rat mouth. So when they found him, they'd know he was a squirrel. Mm-hmm.